0: Well that's, uh, you've seen that, that's our flyer that we're giving out at Christmas Lord of Hope and Glory This passage we're looking at this evening is um, certainly about glory but before we dive into it, let's uh, think about this idea of glory for a minute That's actually an odd sort of word in some ways It's an odd sort of concept and I think the same is true of the Greek word, in Greek it's doxa, which we get our word doxology. Actually when you think about glory it's a bit hard to pin down exactly what it means. Think of some things we might describe as glorious, certainly a holiday in an idyllic landscape can be glorious, we might say I had a glorious time. But on the other hand, something very different, like the actions of a soldier in the heat and mud and the terror of battle, who does something courageous, perhaps saves his comrades. We would say that was glorious as well. Let's sometimes talk about glory in that sort of context. We've got a picture of a star here on our uh, flyer. And I suppose when we think about stars and the sun and the moon we think of glory as meaning brightness. Sometimes we use that metaphor of brightness for other forms of glory, but in most cases it is a a metaphor, It's it's an analogy, a picture. It's not the essence of the thing. In most cases when we talk about glory, it's just a picture of it. So when John said the light was coming into the world he didn't literally mean that somebody came down with a big lantern it's a metaphor of Jesus' glory so perhaps we could get some idea of what glory is if we think of what's the opposite of glory it's not darkness is it the opposite of glory I suppose is ordinariness mundaneness, everydayness something glorious is something weighty which I think is the something the origin of the Greek word to some extent on the Greek and Hebrew ideas of glory is something significant is something that's out of the ordinary something that's different and so Jesus says in 1627 chapter 16 verse 27 that the son of man will come in the glory of the father but what that actually is going to look like exactly (coughs) remains to be seen doesn't it but meanwhile Peter, James and John are granted a preview of that glory at least in one sense and this whole passage that we read and I think we do have to read the whole thing is really one discourse even though it takes place over several days but Matthew has put it together deliberately Peter had recognised Jesus as the promised messiah but he was very unclear about what that meant so in uh, chapter 16 verses 13 to 18 and he got it all wrong didn't he He was obviously still expecting some insurrection against the Romans or something like that, some great victory. But he had been promised a revelation of Jesus the king. Chapter 16, verse 28, he says that those, some here, who will not taste death until they've seen the the king coming in his glory. And you can wonder about exactly what that means, but surely a preview of it is what Matthew tells us next. It's worth just looking at the structure of this um, whole discourse. It's one of these sandwiches you get in Hebrew and Hebrew literature, certainly, but um, people think they don't occur so much in the New Testament, but they do occur from time to time. Mark's Gospel has lots of them. Um, there are. Perhaps not so many in, in Matthew but this is one where that sandwich structure is used and I think it's used very deliberately. Let's just see how it hangs together. So in chapter 16 verses 13 and 14 we, uh, Jesus asks who do people say that I am and, they, and um, the answer is well maybe you're John the Baptist or Elijah the forerunner of the Messiah of course. And then in the middle here we get glimpses of the Messiah himself. So in chapter 16, 15 to 20, we're told that the truth has been revealed to Peter, but they're not telling anyone yet. And then we have this passage in the middle, first of all where Peter misunderstands that the way of the Messiah is the way of the cross then at the end of chapter 16 we have this part where glory is foretold but apparently it's deferred you will see the son of man come with his angels but not yet but there will be a preview and the preview is what we get here the glory of Jesus displayed but yet again they're told not to tell anybody not yet and then just a sort of the other piece of bread on the sandwich it finishes again with talking about elijah and john the baptist and i'm sure matthew has put it together like this very deliberately so that we see that this is a a whole argument that is being presented here who is the king who is the messiah what does his messiahship look like what sort of king is he what sort of messiah is the issue that Matthew is dealing with here. So our actual passage for this evening is chapter 17, 1 to 13, that vision that we describe as the um, as the transfiguration. It's the word that's used in most translation, English translations. What exactly that means, you perhaps don't know, but it, it means something like changing or something like that means what it says there, I guess, is the best way to see it. But it is worth noting that three different words for seeing are used in this passage. In 1628 and in 17 verse 8, the the word used is "ido," which is the ordinary Greek word for seeing something. And then in 17 verse 3, we are told that Moses and Elijah appear. And that Greek word is optonomai, which does mean, basically, or can mean, to appear. They weren't, either weren't there or weren't visible before, but now they can be seen. But the NIV is a bit naughty, actually, in its translation of chapter 17, verse 9, because it says, don't tell anyone what you've seen. But that's not actually what the original says. The, if you have an English Standard Version or even an Authorised Version, you'll find what Jesus actually said is don't tell anyone the vision. The word that's used there is uh, it's horama. Apologise for my Greek pronunciations. I'm no Greek scholar. (coughs) The word that's used there is the word horama or orama. And Strong gives the following definitions. That which is seen as a spectacle, something spectacular or a sight sight divinely granted in an ecstasy or in a sleep or as a vision. This is not just some random event that the three apostles are observing. On the contrary, this is something they're presented with, something that's been very carefully constructed, a spectacle, if you like, something they're supposed to look at, a choreographed vision for which every detail is resonant with meaning. Yet there are strange things about most most visions, of course, just occur to one, just shown to one person, often in a dream or something. But here, this vision had a sufficient presence in the physical world that all three apostles could see it, and yet it's equally clear that it's not an entirely natural appearance that we have here. Peter suggested building booths, which he... Th- thought obviously this was something happening in the physical world. But you know, you, you could get in all, all sorts of knots trying to wonder exactly how this vision appears in the physical world. But really that's pointless speculation. All three apostles could see this. But it's not an entirely natural thing. It's something that they are presented and shown by God himself. Other questions you might ask, like how did the apostles recognize Moses and Elijah? I mean, it's not as if they'd ever met them. <laughs> Somehow they did. Perhaps Jesus spoke to them or called them by name. We don't know. Again, this is just spe- speculation, really. But the point of it, well, actually, there are lots of points of it, I think. This whole thing is designed to give a particular message, it's not just some random event, it's something quite special and what I would have liked to have done is read out all the Old Testament passages that are alluded to here, uh, the only trouble is if I did that we'd be here to midnight, there is so much of that, so much in it, I mean, I've got to be brief this evening because it's communion afterwards as well. So I can't read out all the passages, I'm just going to have to point them out to you, but I think it's worth going through, just going through the whole text, pointing out how each of the detail of this vision is important, and then see where that takes us and what we're really supposed to to learn from it. So let's uh, do that, let's look at the details of the vision. And the first thing we notice is the location. It's up a mountain, If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know that when God had something particularly important to say, he very often said it up a mountain. In particular, of course, he chose a mountain to give the Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai. But there are actually other places in the Old Testament also where God speaks up a mountain. So even the location here is significant. The three apostles are taken up a mountain this spiritual experience there even seems to be some significance in the three companions because Moses took three companions with him when he went up Mount Sinai, he also took some 70 elders but there were three particularly named, we found this in Exodus 24 and these people were given a, a limited vision, a limited audience as it were was given a vision of God's glory Exodus 24, 10 and 11. And we were even told there that they ate and drank, which is perhaps what um, Peter might have had in mind when he was talking about building these booths, that uh, they should sort of camp there, as the uh, Moses companions did. And of course, we have the, the shining, the shining face particularly. In Exodus 34, 29-35, we find that when Moses has been in the presence of the Lord, his face shone, he had to cover it with a veil. But this was just a reflection of the Lord's glory. We notice in verse 2, it's Jesus' face himself who shines. Jesus is, re- is revealed not as a reflection of the glory of the Lord, but as the glory of the Lord itself. And we get a similar thing if you're familiar with it in Revelation chapter 114, whereas the Lord, the risen Lord, is described as a, one whose face shone. So there's a reference in the shining face to the Moses' face shining when he'd been in the presence of the Lord. And then the cloud. Throughout Exodus particularly, a cloud signifies the presence and glory of the Lord, doesn't it? Exodus 24:16 is one example. And the Lord often speaks from the cloud, or the cloud is used to lead the people on their journey. The cloud signifies the presence of the Lord. And what about the words that God speaks? Again, they're all, limit, they're all um, embedded in Old Testament thinking, messianic thinking. So in the messianic psalm 2, for instance, God says, you have become my son today, I have begotten you. The son is the, the messiah, the king in the line of David. And of course, as we've looked at, Recently before, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, 15 to 19, Moses promises a prophet to come. He says that after him, God will send a prophet. And what does he tell the people? He tells the people that they must listen to him. Exactly the words that God uses here. He says, my son, listen to him. Making it clear that this is the prophet that Moses was talking about. What about the? I'm sorry, that's the that's the slide for that. I didn't change it. Apologies. It's got the references there if you if you want to write them down. And what about the dramatic personae, the people, the characters in this narrative? Moses. Moses, of course, was regarded as the founder of the Jewish nation. He was the lawgiver. He was the one who spoke with God face to face and saw the form of the Lord in Numbers 12 8. But now he speaks with Jesus face to face. Moses was the one who led the people out of slavery and towards the promised land, although he didn't quite get there himself. But now Jesus has taken on that role. He leads his people out of the slavery of the world and death. But unlike Moses, who I say actually didn't quite make it to the promised land, Jesus, we are told, has already been to check it out and has returned to take us to himself. And then there's Elijah. There are a lot of prophets in the Old Testament, of course. Elijah didn't write a book. You might say, why is it not Isaiah or Jeremiah, who wrote books that might have been representative, perhaps, of the prophets or Daniel. But actually, there are reasons why Elijah is the prophet who appears here. First of all, he was one of the greatest prophets, of course, his name means "Yahweh is God." And I don't know it hadn't struck me until I thought about this recently, but when Elijah faced down the 450 priests of Baal in one King's 1839, what is it that the people cried at the end of it, "The Lord, He is God." There was they quoting Elijah's name. But there's even one even more important reason I think why we have Elijah here because crucially he was the forerunner prophesied by Malachi and I think I do need to read out this passage. Malachi 4, 4-6 you can look it up if you want to it's just a few verses, I'll read it out Malachi 4, 4-6 says the following Remember The law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. So that's where Moses comes into the prophecy. Then Malachi goes on. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And those in our Old Testament, the last words of the Old Testament, and certainly chronologically, the last words of the Old Testament. Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the law, but if you don't, know, if you don't listen to him, then the land will be struck with a curse. We're even told in this story of the apostles' fear. And this, again, is we find in the Old Testament. It's a fear of the presence of the Lord. In Exodus 20, verses 18 to 20, for instance, which is after the Ten Commandments are given, Moses tells the people not to be afraid. The same reassurance that's repeated here by Jesus himself. But there is a difference here actually because the presence of the Lord in Exodus 20 was made generally known. We find it in verses, um, in those verses that people saw something of the glory of the Lord. Here, only the apostles at this stage are permitted to see it and they uh, stand, as it were, for the people because the message was not yet ready. But... The apostles have that fear which is the natural reaction to realising that you stand in the presence of the Lord. Moses had it himself when he saw the burning bush. But the reassurance comes that God is coming not in judgement at this stage but in grace and that if they turn to the Lord they need not fear but rather rejoice in the presence of the Lord. But then we have what I guess is that the strap line, the punch line of this vision and I'm sure preachers for the last 2,000 years have been making this point. At the end of the vision, Moses and Elijah disappear as rapidly as they'd appeared and the apostles see Jesus only. Moses had established the old covenant, but his job was done. Now Jesus would bring in the new covenant. The spirit of Elijah had come, as we read, in the form of John the Baptist, a prophet. But now John was dead, and largely, as Malachi had suggested, his message had been ignored. Now there was Jesus only the only hope. If they don't listen to him, then Malachi's curse would come into play for those who rejected Jesus. And of course it did. As uh, some 40 years later, the the land was more or less destroyed by the Romans. And yet the role of the Messiah was still not fully understood, even by those apostles. Apostles. We've already read that Peter certainly misunderstood. Even the apostles could not see the necessity for the cross. How could the general population be expected to? If Jesus revealed that, or if the apostles revealed that vision they'd seen of Jesus at that time, the pressure to make Jesus king by force would have been almost irresistible. And so we find the revelation must be kept secret until Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the second time that Jesus has made this point. His full revelation as Messiah could not yet be made public because if he did, the people would take it in the wrong way. So that's the vision. They see Moses and Elijah. They see all the accoutrements of glory as they've seen in the Old Testament. But then they're left with Jesus only. Jesus alone. They saw only Jesus, we are told. So what are we to make of all this? We could ask what was the significance for the apostles and if we ask that question hopefully it will tell us what was the lesson that we are supposed to see from this to learn from this and so the apostles had been promised a revelation of Jesus glory and power in chapter 16 27 and 28 but what they got was not what they expected it was not the kind of glory and power they thought that the Messiah should have at least not at this stage It wasn't an insurrection against the Romans. It wasn't the re establishment of the law of Moses amongst the people. Malachi had told them to go back to the law. In fact, on several occasions in the Old Testament, the law had been read and revived. But it turned out the effect was always short lived. people soon went back to their old ways or else like the Pharisees, they found new and creative ways to undermine the law. Because the law in itself was not powerful enough to change people's hearts. And what about Elijah? Elijah had faced down and destroyed the priests of Baal. But a few days later, he was running away from the wrath of Queen Jezebel, if you read the story. Even that great victory that Elijah had was not really enough to turn the hearts of the people back to God. They they said the words, the Lord, he is God, but as soon as they went away, they just forgot it again. So, what was there to be? Surely now Malachi's curse would have come into play. And indeed, as I say, it did 40 years later when the Romans destroyed the land. But notice that it is not Jesus who brings judgment at this stage. He will do, we're told, in chapter 16, 27, but not at this stage. Because first of all, the new kingdom had to be established. If the old kingdom is to be destroyed, then the new kingdom needs to be set up. And if you have a new kingdom, you need a new kind of king, a new kind of law, a new kind of prophet. Just as when the colonists left Britain to go to America, they wanted to set up a a different kind of kingdom there to some extent they did but unfortunately of course they just took all the old bad habits with them but a new kingdom needs a new kind of king and a new lo- kind of law and a new kind of prophet and that is what Jesus would bring and you notice that all this theatrical stuff the bright clouds and the shining faces and so on that's all gone it's had its day. Glory looks different now. The apostles saw Jesus only. The greatest revelation of the glory of God, the greatest revelation of the glory of the Son of Man is what in appearance, at least, with an ordinary Middle Eastern man. They saw Jesus only. And in that revelation... The glory of God is shown. And of course, Jesus is reminding us that his way is the way of the cross. The way to life is to take up the cross. And a man carrying a cross in that society at that time was a dead man walking, a man on his way to execution. And this message as Jesus makes it clear is not just for the apostles but for anyone and everyone. He said if anyone will come after me he must take up his cross and follow me. The call is to become a dead man walking as it were. To invest in the death of Christ the way of the cross And in fact, if you think about it, the whole of Matthew's Gospel, the whole New Testament, is about Jesus only. That's what the message is about. And properly understood, even the Old Testament is not really about Moses or Elijah, important people though they were in the narrative, but about the prophet who was to come, Jesus only. And so Paul would later write, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews. They couldn't get their heads around it. How could their great king, promised king, go the way of the cross? And he didn't make a lot of sense to the Gentiles either. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. But he goes on to say that those whom Christ called, it is the Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. And the writer to the Hebrews encourages us with similar words. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The pioneer, perhaps, is a better translation of that word author. The one who went the way of the cross before us. But if we're going to follow him, that's the way he's going. And so he says, if any man will follow me, let him take up his cross and follow me. We have to go through the cross, but not, of course, the death of the cross ourselves. Rather, we have to invest in the death of Christ. Jesus' way was the way of the cross, and any disciple must take up that cross. But still, that's not to say that there was no sign. Elijah and Moses had had signs to authenticate their ministry, hadn't they? And there is a sign, and Jesus refers to it it here. He says, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Because until that sign is given, the rest of it doesn't make any sense. If the way to life is through death, then the resurrection is a logical necessity. You can't ditch the resurrection from the Christian message as if it's some embarrassing fairy tale. People try to do that and say, well, of course, people are not really raised, it was just, you know, people just thought it was as if like as if Jesus had been raised. It makes no sense. You cannot remove the resurrection from the Christian gospel. It just doesn't make sense because if there is no resurrection then you're better off sticking with Moses, aren't you? Or Elijah. They did some good to some extent in this world. They did achieve some things. But ultimately they can't change hearts and they can't bring people to the true promised land. Their message was powerful, but their message was not enough. Because in the end, it couldn't change the human heart. Only a death and a resurrection can do that. So, to quote Paul again, we were therefore buried with him through baptism. That's how it works. We are buried through baptism. It means not that we're literally buried, of course, but when we we're baptized, we we're investing. We we're saying we trust in the death of Christ as the way to go. We were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The resurrection is the sign. And so these are the questions that this Matthew is asking us here. Are you walking the way of the cross Are you dead and buried so that you can share in the resurrection life of Jesus? And are you trusting in Jesus only? Do you see Jesus only, not trusting in anything else that you might be tempted to look at? Of course there are lots of useful things. Moses and Elijah were very useful and there are useful things in this world around us. It's useful to study law or to study science or to study psychology. All these things are useful. But they can't give us the ultimate answer. They can't walk the way of death for us. They can't lead us to that resurrection because they can't change our hearts. Jesus only can change our hearts and cause us to be the disciples, to follow him in the way of the cross. Of course I could give a whole new sermon about what that means but I'm not going to do that because uh, we're going to first of all sing about Christ alone.